Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1200. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keene. The European Central Bank set to report its latest monetary policy decision in about 15 minutes. Ahead of that, we're getting earnings by the bucket full. General Motors just out. Uh, earnings per share in the first quarter, adjusted earnings per share, $1.26. The consensus forecast was for $0.99. Cents. Revenue of $37.3 billion is higher than the estimate for $35.6 billion. If you look up Verizon on Yahoo, you'll find that first quarter adjusted earnings per share were $1.06. That's in line with estimates. Revenue, $32.2 billion, a little light. The forecast was for 32 and a half. Blackstone first quarter profit fell 77%. Asset sales slowed. Uh, economic net income, that's a measure of earnings that reflects realized and unrealized investment gains, dropping to 370.7 million. That's 31 cents a share. It was a dollar 37 a year earlier. Time now to check with Michael Barr. Get the latest world and national headlines. Mike? Mike, thank you very much. President Obama is in Saudi Arabia for a meeting with six Arab leaders. The meeting in Riyadh involved issues such as regional security and the Persian Gulf area, including the fight against the Islamic State militant group. Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes. We need to develop uh, those areas that have been devastated by ISIL's presence, uh, and the countries here in the GCC can be helpful in that process. Senate Republicans are set to relent on a major portion of President Obama's request to respond to the Zika virus. Republicans are drafting more than a billion-dollar emergency plan. That is according to a senior Republican aide familiar with the matter. The White House had requested $1.9 billion in additional spending. The Olympic flame has been lit in Greece. The game's organizers voiced confidence today that Brazil would overcome its political and economic problems to stage the successful games. The opening ceremony is August 5th in Rio de Janeiro. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike? Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Land Rover Parsippany Bloomberg NBC Sports Update with John Stasha. All right, Mike, it's been a tight series between the Islanders and Panthers. Three one-goal games. Another, there was a one-goal difference until an empty netter at the end. Game four in Brooklyn was tied midway through the third period. Florida scored one, two to one. John Tavera scored the Islander goal. Panther was all we wanted, and uh, it's not a good enough game from us. We obviously had a great opportunity. Just didn't take advantage of it. So uh, we got to move forward and get ready for game five. And you know, bounce back. Obviously, uh, uh, we know it can be a lot better. Tavares has been all over the ice in this series. Three goals, four assists. They go back to Miami. Tomorrow's Game 5 series tied at two, and that's the Ranger goal. Need a win at the Garden tonight to tie Pittsburgh at two. The Yankees' struggles continue. Solo home runs by D.D. Gregorius and Carlos Beltran, but only four other hits. 0 for 4 with runners in scoring position. They lost to Oakland 5-2 to two and have now dropped 6-7. of seven. And of all, in all six losses, Yanks have scored just one or two runs. Mets cooled off in Philadelphia, losing 5-4 in 11 innings. Joanna Cespedes and Lucas Duda homered for New York. NFL Carolina rescinded the franchise tag of all-pro cornerback Josh Norman. He becomes a free agent. The Philadelphia Eagles acquired the second pick of next week's draft from Cleveland. L.A. Rams had already made a trade with Tennessee to get the first pick. Both the Rams and Eagles expected to draft quarterbacks Jared Goff and Carson Wentz are the top two. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stashow. 
Thank you, John. Well, General Motors beating earnings forecasts, and now the stock is much higher, up 3.6% in the pre-market trade. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. And welcome back to Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee. We are right now about oh, 11 minutes or so away from the ECB rate decision. No change expected. But ahead of that decision, the stock 600 is down 2.6 tenths of a percent. The DAX off 25 points, also two tenths. U.S. futures little changed. S&P even is up a point, about a tenth. Time now for the Bloomberg NJIT STEM report brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, investing more than $110 million a year to applied research to solve problems and improve life. Learn more at storiesofinnovation.njit.edu. Here's John Tucker. Yeah, let's see what's uh, making news in science, technology, engineering, and math. But yeah, taxis aren't the only ones that uh, may be stressing out about Uber technologies. Uh, transactions from the ride-hailing startup have surpassed rental cars among American professionals. This is according to Certify, the second biggest provider of travel and expense management software in North America. Uber accounting for 43% of ground transportation transactions expensed through Certify last quarter, while rental cars had uh, 40%. Ride-hailing services with Uber at the forefront overtook rental cars for the first time in the fourth quarter of 2015 and have since widened their lead. This is according to a study by Certify that was published today. U.S. rocket manufacturers stand to gain if the uh, draft $56 billion Commerce Justice Science Spending Bill for fiscal 2017 advancing through the Senate becomes law. The Senate CJS Appropriations Subcommittee, by unanimous consent, sent the draft measure to the full committee for a markup today. A bill, according to summaries provided by the Senate Appropriations Committee, contains $19.3 billion for NASA. That would be an increase. Now, that is this morning's Bloomberg NJIT STEM report. Michael. Thank you very much. Well, we're joined now by Admiral James Stavridis. He is uh, the dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, formerly uh, the highest-ranking admiral you can get in the U.S. Navy, served as the uh, commander of uh, the U.S. European Command and NATO's uh, Supreme Command in Europe, uh, commander of the U.S. Southern Command, um, very long Navy business card. Jim, uh, I want to ask you about the president's trip to the Middle East, uh, the stop in Saudi Arabia, because uh, we have been up and down in our political relationship with the Saudis, but the military relationship has remained fairly stable despite our differences. They've always allowed the U.S. to basically operate in their theater, and they are big customers for our weapons systems. So um, is the spat between us and the Saudis over uh, 9-11, over what's going on with oil and that sort of thing, uh, is, is that just temporary? Uh, is the relationship more fundamental and deeper from the point of view of somebody who looks at the strategic picture? Mike, good morning. I think you've categorized it correctly, which is that the long-term strategic interest of the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia align very well. They are and have been very close allies. Uh, they continue to uh, do an extraordinarily good job of working with us on a military-to-military -military basis. But we have some significant tactical disagreements, if you will. The first one you already mentioned is the 
a contention that some level of the Saudi government was involved in the 9-11 attacks. There's still some classified material that hopefully will be released soon that I hope will pretty much lay that to rest, but we don't know until we see that. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, is the contretemps between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which is quite significant. It's not only a Sunni-Shia divide, but it's a direct disagreement in uh, Yemen, where effectively their troops are opposing each other, in the Persian Gulf itself at sea, in Syria, where Iran supports Assad and the Saudis do not. So there's this overlay of disagreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And uh, to, to the point of this meeting by the president arriving in Saudi Arabia, um, he's there to try and assuage the concerns of the Saudis uh, about the Iran nuclear deal and whether we continue to truly value them as allies. So it's a tricky time, and it will be, a, I think, a contentious set of meetings for the president. How, how do the Iranians and Saudis stack up militarily? Is, is it basically a standoff here? Is there a sort of a, a mutual uh, ability to hurt the other that keeps them from direct conflict? In terms of how they stack up, um, it's an interesting pair of military uh, relationships as follows. The Saudis are much more technically capable because they have had an enormous amount of oil wealth as well as access to Western military markets. So their jets are better. Their tanks are better. All of their hardware is two or three generations better than anything the Iranians are fielding. On the other hand, uh, Iran has invested quite a bit in ballistic missile technology. This is why the Saudis want ballistic missile defenses more from us. And secondly, the Iranians have a comparatively massive ground force uh, because of the population differences between the two countries. So I would give the Saudis the technological edge. I'd give the Iranians the a combat experience and pure size of the ground force edge. And no. I don't think we're going to see them go to direct conflict with each other. We'll see more surrogate-type activity like we do today, Mike. Well, let's come back with uh, Admiral James uh, Stavridis. She's now the dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. A lot going on in U.S. politics that touch on foreign affairs, and we'll get his thoughts on that coming up. We will also have the ECB decision for you in about five minutes. They put out the numbers on interest rates at 7.45 Wall Street time. Then at 8.30, Mario Draghi will explain anything else we need to know about their policy, and we'll have that news conference for you here live on Bloomberg Surveillance. Futures are mixed. We're counting down to the opening bell, brought to you by the new Jeep Grand Cherokee, the most awarded SUV ever. The Grand Cherokee continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive one at your local Jeep dealer today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Mark Spanith, LLP, ranked among the top three forensic accounting firms in New York by the New York Law Journal for the sixth year in a row. Visit MarkSpanith.com. 
And we do have some breaking news crossing the Bloomberg as the European Central Bank leaves all three of its rates unchanged, the main financing rate remaining unchanged at 0%. U.S. stock index futures, meanwhile, on this busy morning for earnings, are little change to higher. S&P E-mini futures up about two points. Dow E-mini futures up 10. NASDAQ E-mini futures up one. The DAX in Germany is down a quarter percent. Ten-year Treasury down 8.30 seconds. The yield 1.87%. Yield on the two-year, 0.8%. Zero percent. Nymex crude oil down a tenth of a percent or six cents to forty four twelve a barrel. Comex gold is up half percent or five dollars eighty cents to twelve sixty twenty an ounce. The euro a dollar thirteen twenty one. The yen one zero nine point seven nine. General Motors posting first quarter profit of two billion dollars, beating analyst estimates as every region around the globe showed solid results, led by a record results in North America and Verizon Communications adding six hundred forty thousand new subscribers and meeting analyst profit estimates. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Uh, thanks so much, Karen. Greatly appreciate it. We're going to rip up the script here in honor of the Queen's birthday. <laughs> Ninety years old. James Stravitas was there with Nelson at Trafalgar. <laughs> he joins us now, Admiral Stravitas. I know, Jim. Nice, nice to have you with us, of course, with the Fletcher School as well. There is a modest debate in the United Kingdom that is deadly serious, which is submarines. Would you brief us? On the global submarine defense and offense, we have pictures of Russian submarines deployed. I was looking for Harrison Ford. I couldn't spot him. And in, in the England, this is a serious issue about replacing the Trident sub, isn't it? It is. And uh, actually, the guy you should have been looking for was uh, Sean O'Connery, who played the captain of the Red October. So when you, yeah, when you watch October. that, are you like throwing popcorn at the screen or is I am- it real? It's uh, total popcorn, um, but I'll tell you what is very serious, you're absolutely correct, is the debate over Trident, because it is hugely expensive for the Brits, and they feel relatively comfortable that they live under our nuclear umbrella. So, frankly, as a military, U.S. military, I'd rather see them spending that money on a carrier or better jets to go on the carrier or even enhancing their special forces or their cyber capability. I think it's a national pride point to have the nuclear force, and I'm not sure that's the best use of their funding. Mike, the Vanguard sub, I guess proposed, is twice as long as a Boeing 747. These are are huge machines of war, Uh, 18,000 tons. Uh, they can toss a ballistic a trajectory missile for thousands and thousands of miles. Um, these are very capable, very complex, and very expensive. Uh, the cost you're suggesting, then, is not worth the uh, what you get out of basically having it, the, the, you know, the idea that you're a part of the nuclear club and that you can project force. Correct. And I think uh, I'd, I'd make the same argument about the French nuclear force. Um, these are just huge investments that are not necessary. Uh, what I want to make clear, though, is I'm not advocating not building those submarines and then simply taking that defense spending it, turning it into domestic constituencies. I'm simply saying you've got to spend 2% of your GDP on defense, which is the NATO goal. The Brits meet it. The French do not. But they should be using that money not on a nuclear force, my opinion, but on better conventional capability that would match up with us and with NATO. 
Interesting um, news from the campaign front. Uh, Donald Trump back out suggesting we should uh, be waterboarding. Uh, A lot of people criticizing him for the interviews he gave to the New York Times and Washington Post where he uh, betrayed zero knowledge of foreign policy. I'm wondering, uh, can you learn that stuff if you if you want to in the heat of a campaign like this? In other words, could the person that people are voting for in November be significantly different from the person we're seeing now? I think it's unlikely. A candidate has to devote such an enormous amount of time to the the simple mechanics of showing up, giving the stump speech, doing the interviews. There's very little time for, if you will, personal development and growth. But we've seen this movie before, right? Uh, Eight years ago, we elected a first-term senator named Barack Obama who had essentially zero foreign policy experience. Uh, I think that... It is far better to have a candidate who has a sense of the world and a real level of foreign policy experience. The question is, Mike and Tom, who would he bring in as advisors? Mm -hmm. And I think um, that's what we ought to be focusing on as voters, because he's not going to learn this between now and November. Uh, But he could be telling us more about who's on the team, who's given him advice, who's he going to bring in. How distant is Mr. Trump's views on your world, Admiral, from the Republican establishment? Is he close? Is he adjacent? Or are you teaching at Tufts that he's on Mars or Venus? Well, first of all, I'm not part of the Republican establishment. I know you know that. I know. I'm, yeah, a, fine. I'm a centrist. I'm a registered independent. Yeah, but how far military. away is he? I got he the point. From, he, is, you know, he, he is at great distance uh, from centrist I would argue, sensible views on foreign policy, and I'll give you two obvious examples. One is the idea of building a wall with Mexico. Listen, we don't need to build walls uh, between us and Latin America and the Caribbean. We need to be in the business of building bridges. There's enormous potential down there, and the signal that would send would be disastrous for us in that entire world, not just in Mexico. The second example... uh, you know I'm going to say this, is his view that we ought to either get out of or diminish our leadership role in NATO. That would be a huge mistake. That's our strongest pool of allies in the world. Uh, They've stood with us over and over again in a wide variety of campaigns. They don't meet the 2% spending goal, but they do spend $300 billion a year on defense, more than uh, more than Russia and China combined. So there's two examples of being really out of step with where uh, I think sensible, centrist foreign policy lies. Um, is there a case to be made that, though, that uh, NATO needs to be changed? I think there's always a case for any organization, particularly one that's been around for 70 years and has seen its mission set evolve, uh, to continue to improve itself. And I, I, I yield to no man in my frustration at times with NATO. But, you know, so much of life is compared to what? And if we were to simply drop out of NATO and not be a leader and not try and change it, make the spending on the European side come up a bit, uh, do more efficient work in and around the command structure in Europe, uh, take a more direct approach to NATO's role in Syria. Those are all things I would do. Uh, but we're not going to accomplish that by getting out of NATO or diminishing our leadership. I have to ask you this. Uh, 
the Russians have been all of a sudden buzzing U.S. warships. Two yeah. Russian fighter jets flew within 30 feet of the USS Donald Cook Correct. Uh, this week. Uh, Russia's NATO envoy is uh, just on the wires now uh, saying that uh, it's our fault. Uh, the Russia can't <laughs> ignore a U.S. warship in the Baltic. What, what would you do? I would continue to do exactly what we're doing, which is uh, drive our ships on the high seas. Those ships were in international waters. They have every right in the world to be there. The idea that we're somehow going to cede to the Russians the Baltic as a, uh, and I use this term deliberately, a Soviet lake, is absurd. Uh, it, it makes no more sense than ceding the entire South China Sea to China. Uh, we have got to continue to operate our aircraft and our ships on the high seas, in international waters, in international airspace. There's no question that what the Russians are doing is deeply provocative, highly dangerous from a military perspective. Right. And I would guess is not coming from Alexander Grushkov, the NATO rep. It's coming from Vladimir Putin. Did you read Patrick O'Brien, the seventh <laughs> novel, The Surgeon's Mate, about I, the war in the Baltic? Of course. I've read all 20 of those I novels. have, too. They are the greatest books on leadership ever written. But, yes, it is. It, the Baltic is the strategic sea of Europe. It's not the Mediterranean. It's the Baltic. Why is it? We, I mean, in the time we've got left, one minute. Explain why the Baltic's so important to our global audience, Admiral. It's because it is the, the crossroads of great powers in Europe. This is where the United Kingdom the uh, Russians uh, and the, the low countries, France uh, and Belgium, all this is great. come together. It, yeah, it, Mike, this is so good. Russell Kroll is going to speak at the Fletcher School. <laughs> I can see it now. Jim <laughs> Shavita. We'll, we'll put him on a panel with you. <laughs> yeah, there please. There you go. Please, um, the, the sainted one will show up. To, uh, it'll be the one panel the sainted one will listen to. Jim Shavita, thank you so much. With the Fletcher School, folks, I'll put out on social uh, the wonderful Wikipedia page for the surgeons made in is the Admiral States. I can't say enough about the life work of Patrick O'Brien, all 21 books. All right, let's uh, once again note that the ECB has announced it has not done anything, did not change the refinancing rate of zero or the deposit rate of uh, negative uh, 40 uh, 40 basis points. So now it is up to Mario Draghi in about a half hour from now to tell us if there's anything else we need to know. Ahead of that, we're watching European stocks lower, the stock 600 down by three points.